This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. It is Wednesday, and we are talking about ROP. Daphne, how are you? I'm good. It's a big topic, the ROP. I think it's the probably the number one section. Like That's where people can often get tricked is that they skip the eye ophthalmology section, and then you realize, oh, shit, ROP's in there. That's right. <laughs> That's right. And you, like you said, we need it like every week, you know, and the parents are always asking really good questions about ROP. Yeah. So I'm going to talk about screening and then I'll let you take over management because I had to stop yesterday because we were getting short on time. Mm -hmm. But um, basically, there's a there's a nice there's a lot of controversy regarding screening. There's a nice article from the AP in 2018 uh, that is referenced on our website in the ROP uh, series of episodes that we did for this very podcast. Um, so the, the screening really should be, there's two things. Number one, mostly it's babies who are born at 30 weeks of gestation or less. However, if you have any baby that is, uh, considered to you, uh, despite the fact of an older gestational age to be at high risk for ROP, whatever the reason, I'm not going to get into it, then they should get checked anyway. So it's not a hard rule that, oh, you're 32 weeks, then you should never check for ROP. That is not true. If you have any of these concerns, you should do it. And if you have concerns for retinopathy of prematurity in older babies who are at a high risk, then um, then you will say uh, you will say four weeks. Four weeks is your is your time point. Okay, so at about a month. The example I always think of is like the thirty-one weeker who's like eight hundred grams, right? It's like, what if the OB doesn't have like the mother may have a, a maybe inconsistent prenatal care, and you're like, what if the dating is a bit off? Maybe it's not just fully growth restriction. I might then that baby will check, and that is four weeks, okay? Okay, so that's number one. So um, the other component that is very important is this birth weight of less than 1,500 grams, right? I mean, that's also uh, considered a risk factor. Now, um, for babies who are, um, let's, I'm just going to, I mean, let me see. Um, I'm going to go through the table that's in the AP. It's probably easier. But basically, we're starting at about 22 weeks of gestation. So you have babies who are born at 22 weeks, assuming you're resuscitating them, whatever. But then from 22 weeks up until 27 weeks, okay, um, when you're going to screen these babies, so 22 to 27, when you screen these babies is going to be very variable in terms of chronologic age because they should all be checked at 31 weeks. And so technically, a baby that's born at 22 weeks is going to have to wait like nine full weeks to be screened compared to a 27-weeker who will just wait four weeks. Now, if you followed me here until the 27-week baby, then it's quite easy from there because everybody gets checked at four weeks chronological age afterwards. So then starting at 27 weeks, then kids get checked at different corrected gestational age. So let's, I'm going to go through this one more time because that's, I think, high yield. 22 weeks to 27, you get checked when you reach 31 weeks corrected. And then from 27 uh, onward, you just get checked at four weeks of age, regardless of what your gestational age is. I have to say that speaking to ophthalmologists in the past, you will never see, like, 
they cannot, they, 36 weeks is way too far, okay? Um, so most of them, I'll just will want to check babies who are before 36 weeks. But in this categorization, the oldest baby in the table, which is a 30-week infant, will be checked at 34 weeks at the, for their first screening. So that, that should be fine. Um, all right, so 22 to 27, then 27 on to 30. All right, I'm going to let you talk about management then. Okay, I, I did want to mention, not yeah. because it is for the boards, right? Because the boards are always a little bit delayed in implementation right. of new guidelines and stuff. But there is a discussion, so it's not a new guideline, okay? Mm -hmm. There's a discussion about new it's ROP screening criteria. Um, there's a big study group. This is called the GROP, G, the letter G, dash, ROP or ROP criteria, um, which is looking at including kind of um, uh, more babies who are at risk. Um, these would include things like a slow postnatal weight gain and the presence of hydrocephalus. So just something to note that that is, that is in discussion and being mm -hmm. studied. But we're not going to get any further into that today. Thank you for that. You're welcome. <laughs> so management. Um, what do, why are we managing it? So it's really the attempt um, early on is to prevent ROP by minimizing oxygen use soon after birth. So that's something we all know that um, babies who need a lot of oxygen use for a long period of time are the highest risk. And it's very much the reason why we started looking at uh, changing our oxygen thresholds and saturation types titrations. Um, now, interestingly, um, there has been a finding that supplemental oxygen to infants with pre-threshold ROP without plus disease may reduce progression of ROP. Now, that doesn't mean we're adding oxygen to all of these babies, but potentially our oxygen parameters change over time, especially mm -hmm. depending on what babies' ROP exams look like. And that is, I think, very... Um, particular to different units. So something to discuss with your group. Um, and then we talked a little bit about the decision to treat ROP based on the threshold or pre-threshold criteria um, yesterday. Um, something I would definitely take a look at. It's really tough, I think, to commit those to memory, but they are testable. And then there are a variety of ROP treatment options. And again, the goal of treating ROP is one, to reduce blindness and um, two, to hopefully catch it before you get into stage four and stage five um, and reduce the occurrence of retinal detachment. Um, so one uh, option is laser photocoagulation. The second option is cryotherapy. This is largely reserved for situations where laser therapy could not be offered, such as poor pupillary dilation um, and things like vitreous hemorrhage. And third is um, an anti the anti-VEGF therapy. So this can be used as a monotherapy or in combination with laser therapy. And there's still a lot of discussion in the community about uh, what is the preferred agent, what is the preferred method, um, and are different stages um, more likely to respond to one or the other. Anti-VEGF in particular has been shown to be effective in zone one disease, but not zone two disease. 
but it's felt to have some advantages. A shorter procedure time, you can use topical anesthesia, there's less retinal um, destruction, there's slightly lower risk of recurrence when compared to laser therapy. And probably the biggest advantage is that there are lower rates of severe myopia in the long-term follow-up. Potential disadvantages, so there is this concern about um, systemic circulation of VEGF um, with unknown long-term consequences. A lot of focus is being done on, for example, the developmental outcomes in babies who are treated with laser versus VEGF therapy. Did I tell you I presented a poster on that sometime in my in my past? You, you may have. You may. Have. I don't recall, though. <laughs> did you? I you did. Should never, you should never sit on the podcast because then people are going to be like, ooh, then, then let me just triple check. <laughs> Anyways, and you know you have. I digress. So, so I digress. Some, some people are going to hunt it down. Are going to hunt down the paper. I attended right a, now, quite a prestigious uh, ROP conference. Were you, married at, were you married at the time? Uh, I was, in fact. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Now I can put. Okay. Uh, but other potential disadvantages: it increases the length of time required for normal vascularization of the retina thereby increasing the duration of vulnerability for ROP recurrence. And it does require a longer period of follow-up for that reason. The optimal dose is still not known. Are there ways we can use it without the systemic circulation? Um, and ongoing trials are being done to see if the dose can be reduced. Now, if you've progressed to partial, partial retinal detachment, um, there are some potential disadvantages. Um, there's a concern for the systemic circulating of VEGF um, and how might that um, affect um, infants in other ways, say with babies with hemangiomas or uh, a lot of study is being done on the long-term neurodevelopmental outcomes of babies who've been treated um, with uh, laser or VEGF or a combination of the two. It increases the length of time required for normal vascularization of the retina, um, and this increases the duration of vulnerability for ROP recurrence and thusly requires a longer period of follow-up. The optimal dose is still not known, and so ongoing trials are being done to see if the dose can be reduced. So if you've progressed and you have developed, the baby has developed partial retinal detachment, in some of these cases, you may be able to treat it with this scleral buckling. Basically moves the sclera closer to the retina so it reduces the kind of traction um, on the retina and hopefully allows the retina to reattach. Now, if you have a complete retinal detachment, it is difficult to reattach the retina. I'm sure that it is. I don't even, I mean, <laughs> I don't know if difficult is even the right word. Can they even do it? I know of some adults with retinal detachment who have, have, I don't know, things have mm. healed, but I, I, I don't, I don't know. That's why they, there are these other, that's why most uh, end up in this, in the vitrectomy and, and a vitrectomy may rescue light, dark perception or provide ambulatory vision. Yet typically there's no change in visual acuity. So, I mean, we are really trying to avoid retinal detachment because the outcomes are um, so poor. And obviously referral to early intervention program um, because of this increased risk of blindness. The prognosis, so complications of laser and cryotherapy include cataracts, glaucoma, and anterior segment ischemia. 
Um, I told you about some of the disadvantages with VEGF therapy. Um, all preterm infants are at an increased risk for amblyopia and refractive errors with increasing severity depending on the degree of ROP. And we know that ROP plus some of the other complications of prematurity can be cumulative um, in terms of visual outcomes. Um, and if you do have ROP as a neonate, there's still an increased risk of retinal detachment into adulthood, especially stage three, because there's this residual scarring that may predispose to retinal thinning and holes. And so it, you have this ongoing risk for retinal detachment. Your turn. <laughs> so the first thing we want to talk about is strabismus. Uh, which basically, if you don't know what strabismus is, it's um, vertical or horizontal deviation in the ocular alignment. Um, it's often detected within the first year of life, but can be observed later in childhood. The risk highly correlates with a history of ROP. I feel like I've, we're probably going to do this question as well on Friday, but I feel like there's a there's a lot of questions about like this being the most common uh complication of ROP. It occurs in about 12 to 22% of preterm infants compared with full-term who are basically experiencing this like less than 3% of the time. Another, um, another outcome in preterm infants that is interesting to mention is refractive errors. So in the inability of the eye to focus image on images uh, precisely, to focus images precisely on the retina. And uh, preterm infants with uh, greater risk of severe hyperopia meaning images focused posterior to the retina, and myopia, image focused anterior to the retina. The development of, the my of myopia is strongly associated with a history of significant ROP. Mild ROP was not associated with increased risk of refractive error compared with prematurity alone. Now, the incidence of refractive errors in preterm infants is about 4 to 20% with hyperopia, 14 to 22% in the case of myopia, compared to 9%, uh, for example, in full-term infants. So again, much higher in our preterm population. 5 to 7% for severe myopia compared to 2% in the full-term population. In terms of visual acuity, acuity which um, is sometimes something parents um, are um, asking a lot about, preterm infants with greater risk uh, of decreased visual acuity even after corrections of the refractive errors. And I think this is sometimes why you see a lot of our former premiums wearing glasses very early on. 4 to 8% of former preterm infants uh, with impaired visual acuity um, compared to about like 0 to 1 in full term. And obviously the greater risk is if there is a history of ROP. Um, I'm going to do cataracts. I feel like we have time. So cataracts are basically non-specific reaction to a change in the lens metabolism leading to the lens opacification. So the lens looks sort of white. Um, it's caused by any process that alters the glycolytic pathway or the epithelial cell mitosis of the avascular part of the lens. The etiology can be very wide, and it can either include uh, isolated autosomal dominant in one-fourth of cases. It may be associated with other eye anomalies. It could be related to congenital infections. Uh, herpes is one of them. Varicella is one of them. Toxoplasmosis is one of them. But obviously, the big one is rubella. 50% of patients with rubella syndrome will have cataracts. It could be related to metabolic derangements like galactosemia, 
galactoke kinase deficiency, mevalonic aciduria, some mucolipidoses. I hate the metabolic. It's just so hard for me. I mean, yeah, as a foreigner, the metabolic disease are just really, uh, they have my number. Hypocalcemia or vitamin A or D deficiency. Um, other genetic, but not metabolic necessarily, uh, issues um, including smith lemley opiet syndrome, Stickler syndrome, trisomy 21, and Wagger syndrome. Interestingly enough, in utero exposure to radiation is associated with cataract, right? So not, not after birth, in utero exposure to radiation, which must be a fascinating sort of pathophysiologic process. Uh, finally, trauma is another one. So make sure your your ROP screen team doesn't <laughs> doesn't give you one more problem to deal with. Um, the way you make the diagnosis is through the white choroidal reflex, which leads you to see leukocoria. The management is surgical, and um, you should obviously make attempts at identifying the underlying etiology. If untreated, this leads to uh, visual loss, poor fixation, nystagmus, amblyopia, or strabismus. Um, I'm going to do the next one, and I have time. Congenital glaucoma. So congenital glaucoma is what old people also get. It's increased intraocular pressure in the aqueous humor, so the anterior fluid of the eye. Uh, the majority of these are caused by obstruction of the uh, <laughs> the aqueous, aqueous humor outflow. So the etiology could be either primary or secondary, right? So primary is one in about 10,000 births. It's typically autosomal recessive. Males are more affected than females, and it's present at birth. The secondary uh, mechanism in which this could also happen is it happens after the neonatal period. It can be caused by homocystinuria, congenital rubella syndrome, ROP, and numerous other syndromes. Um, the symptoms are the same as the one seen in primary glaucoma. Now, clinically, what we will see is that we'll see bilateral involvement with corneal cloudiness uh, caused by the corneal edema. We'll see photophobia, increased uh, uh, increased lacrimation. Um, bufo oh man, I'm gonna stomach this one. Buftalmos, buftalmos. Okay, fine. Uh, which is basically the enlargement of the globe of the eye and excessive eye rubbing. The diagnosis is basically you need um, you need an ophthalmologist to actually done and measure intraocular pressure. And uh, Dr. Right. Brodsky and Martin are commenting on this, that it's actually even more difficult to get a precise read in units. The management involves periodic observation, consultation with ophthalmology. You can consider medical therapy, but patients usually require surgery to increase drainage. And obviously, you would want to monitor vision. Whenever I see all these things in the management, I, by the way, as important as it is, you can ignore it for test purposes. These very general sort of close observation uh like basically there's no single it doesn't seem like there's anything that you will be ordering mm -hmm. on these babies right um and even periodic observation other than an eye exam right but <laughs> even when they do say that like right periodic observation whatever like i'm not doing periodic observation unless I, ophthalmology has come by evaluated the baby and then says nothing for oh yeah no I, that's what it's i mean like, Co consult up the yeah, you would never say oh i'm going to do periodic observation for a few months and then i'll call after no it's it's yeah the prognosis is uh depending on how early you make the diagnosis the sooner the treatment the better the outcome but you do have an increased risk of uh, blindness if left untreated okay and now i'm done
Okay, buddy. Thanks. See you tomorrow. <laughs> Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphna and I via email by sending your messages to nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at NICUPodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.